Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Now we are on live this week, happy to be back from a little break, and we're going to be talking today about hepatitis B and C. Now, if you or a loved one have ever had this, you can give us a holler at 941-3689, toll free from our neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Liver disease is the fourth leading cause of death for middle-aged adults in the U.S. Hepatitis C is one of those causes and is being diagnosed at the highest rate in those born between the years of 1945 and 1965. In addition, in the last couple of weeks, the Department of Health sent out a letter to all physicians that suggested that the CDC has some new guidelines on who should be tested for hepatitis B and also HIV. Now, we're going to focus on hepatitis today, but one of those guidelines is that anybody who was born in Asia should be tested for hepatitis B, in addition to any risk factors and the age group that we decided need to be tested for hep C. So why do people need to be tested, and what's the big deal about hepatitis to begin with? Well, we've got liver specialist Dr. Naoki Sai and internist Dr. Marina Reutman. They're in the studio about to share the latest They have been instrumental in reestablishing the liver center at Queens Hospital so that we can really have access to top-notch liver care right here in the islands. I want to welcome both of you to The Body Show. Thank you. Thank you. Now, hepatitis, it just means some type of inflammation, in this case, the liver. But we talk about different types of viral causes like hep B, hep C. Marina, what do you tell people when they say, what is hepatitis? How do you answer that question? What is hep B or C and why should I care? So Kathleen, exactly as you said, hepatitis means an inflammation of the liver. Viral hepatitis, particularly hepatitis B and C, is a viral infection of the liver that leads to that inflammation. And so that infection is, it's an infection. You have to do something about it. It could lead to some troubles down the line. Exactly. Left untreated, uh, viral hepatitis can lead to liver scarring, which is uh, called liver fibrosis, and eventually would lead to advanced liver scarring, which is cirrhosis. Also, untreated viral hepatitis will put patients at risk for development of liver cancer or hepatocellular carcinoma over the long period of time. So, yes, certainly something should be done about it. And you don't want to get any one of these things. I mean, if you can avoid it, don't get hepatitis, but also don't get hepatocellular carcinoma, don't get liver cancer, don't get cirrhosis. Now, if you were to have gotten hepatitis, Dr. Sai, viral hepatitis, I'll be very specific, viral hepatitis, where would you have gotten this from? How do you get viral hepatitis? Well, there is about five different viral hepatitis. If we just talk about hepatitis B and C, they are transmitted through blood and blood transmissions and all body fluid. Uh, for instance, hepatitis B are mostly transmitted in Asia that you mentioned through mothers. That's at the time when they were born and what we call uh, maternal fetal transmissions. And so they are infected at birth most of the time. Uh, Sometimes during the adult life, which is more common, the transmission was through a sexual uh, relationship. And uh, for hepatitis C, 
the most common mode of transmission is through uh, blood transfusions in the past or usage of dirty needles uh, and also using the needle for tattooing. Uh, but sexually transmission are less common in the hepatitis C side, more common in hepatitis B. So you could be born in Asia, exposed to hepatitis B as you were born, literally as an infant, and never have any symptoms. Does just being exposed mean that you're going to have a chronic infection? Or are there certain people in that group who develop the chronic infection and some people who don't? Well, for hepatitis B, <clears throat> if you are infected at the time of birth or before age five, your chance of being infected chronically is about 95%. Very 95%. Correct. Okay. If you have it or exposed to it at the time when you were adult, then only 5% of them will become chronically infected. The, the adult mode of transmission being the blood or body fluids you talked about for hepatitis B, whether it be through sexual intercourse or be through, you know, IV drug use or tattoos or some of those modes where you could get hep C, it's 5% will become what we call chronic active hepatitis. hepatitis. But if you were exposed at birth, 95% chronic active hepatitis. Correct. So then I'm wondering... Why didn't the CDC suggest we test for hep B and hep C a lot earlier? Well, for I can say for the hepatitis B, number one, the Asian populations are the minorities since 19... Elsewhere, other than here, right? right. Exactly, okay. Also because they have vaccines that is available since 1980s. So the public health officials look through this and find out that, well, this is a preventable disease and should not be a burden to public health in the United States. So that emphasis is more on vaccinations than to detect for them. Until about 1990s, when they start to recognize that there is a change in immigration pattern in this country. Before that, in the, in the uh, area just after World War II, most of the immigrants are from Western Europe, and they, are, they have much less Hep B infection in that populations. But in the 1970s, 1980s, with the South Asian conflicts, we got a lot of immigrants that come from Southeast Asia. We're so heavy from Eastern Europe, where after the uh, old Russian Republic breakdown, we have all those immigrants come into these countries. And that's another high endemic area for hepatitis B. And that catched the attention of the CDC that they realize that the what we call prevalence of the hepatitis B, meaning that a certain point in time, the number of people who are infected with hepatitis B is cons consistently same. There's not dec no decrease in hepatitis B prevalence. And they recognize it's not because of new infection in this country, but it's an imported chronic infection to this country. And we still have to deal with this consequence of those infections. Then they realize universal, universal vaccination is the key to stop that for the first generations, but screening for the second generations. 
Now, we've been talking about hepatitis B. Uh, Dr. Reutemann, tell me, what is the vaccine series for hepatitis B? We've mentioned there is a vaccine so that if you have never been exposed, you could get protection for life. What is that series of shots? How many are there and when should you get them? Immediately, one day, the next day, the third one, or do you have a time span when you get those vaccinations? Certainly. The series of vaccinations uh, consists of three shots. Uh, one now, one in one month, and one in six months. And uh, um, a lot of the times these shots can be administered at the uh, primary care provider's office or oftentimes uh, pharmacies such as Long's or PharmaCare also do those shots. So they're very, very easy to get. They essentially have no side effects. And, um, you know, like Dr. Sai mentioned, at this point, uh, all the babies that are born in the United States, the vaccination begins at birth. It's primarily uh, those who have um, been born before the universal vaccination policy has been instituted that are at risk for potentially getting it and should be vaccinated after the screening. Well, and I know the first day I started medical school, I got shot number one. If you couldn't prove that you had already had the vaccination, you had to get it. And these days, when I see people who are enrolling in any type of uh, education, whether it be nursing school or even in university, they're requiring that they have certain vaccinations, and hepatitis B is one of those. The other, the other time that I see it is if you ever go to the CDC's website, the Centers for Disease Control.gov, CDC.gov, uh, you can go there and go into their traveler section. And in every single country, whenever I've looked for the traveler section, it always says, consider hepatitis B vaccination. You know, you don't have to, but it's highly recommended because you never know if you get in an accident in a foreign country, if you need a blood transfusion or whatever may happen, you know, you could be exposed. So they recommend vaccination pretty much for everyone. And so if you haven't ever gotten hepatitis B vaccination, really no reason not to. There's certainly no reason not to. I think at this point, we try to focus on patients who are at high risk for getting hepatitis B, such as those who live uh, with a patient who has chronic active hepatitis B, or uh, those patients who already have underlying liver disease, because we want to make sure that we protect them from getting yet another liver disease on top of the ones they already have. Certainly, if you're going to travel to an endemic area, vaccination would be indicated as well. And like I said, all babies these days are vaccinated at birth. Sure. And anyone in the medical profession, you need to be vaccinated because you could potentially be exposed to blood and body fluids more often than the general public, given what you do as far as a profession. So very good point. Now, hepatitis C, no vaccine. No. Not yet. Are we working on it? Well, it had been working on for about the last 20 years. Oh, that makes it difficult then. Okay. Very difficult. It's pretty much like HIV, where the virus mutates in a very quick fashion. So the, uh, the new vaccine that is developed may become outdated in the next two or three days because the virus developed their mutation already. I wonder why hepatitis B doesn't develop the mutation. Let's not give it any ideas. <laughs> but, you know... It's good that it doesn't, that we actually have the ability to have that series of vaccines. Now, tell me, Dr. Royman, why do you need three shots? Why can't you just get one? Does the extra shot a month later and, and then at the six-month point, does that help to boost your immunity a bit? It does, certainly. It, uh, it's an, kind of an additive effect of uh, exposure to the viral antigen that will eventually provide you with a long-standing immunity. 
Now, what if you're one of those bad boys and girls that gets shot number one? Maybe you go get shot number two at four weeks, and then you're just, I never got my third shot, and it's been a year. What should those people do? You can probably test on whether or not they have acquired immunity. I think that will probably, in my mind, step number one. So a primary care provider can check whether or not the patient has acquired immunity with the two shots. There's a blood test. It's pretty easy. Exactly, exactly. If they have not acquired immunity, I'd probably go ahead and start the vaccination series over again because we are not really sure where we're at at this point. And again, it's harmless, it's easy to get, and it probably would be worth just starting over again. No harm in getting an extra shot. Correct. correct. Even more immunity. Super immunity. (laughs) Now, they also combine it. We're not really talking so much about hep A, but they do have a combination hep A, hep B vaccine called Twinrix. And that gives you protection against not just hepatitis B, but also hepatitis A, which is not as dangerous or serious as hepatitis B in the general population, unless you already have a liver disease, like you mentioned earlier, then you have to be extra careful, really keep your liver happy, don't do anything to make that liver mad, because you could get in trouble. So there is a there is an option to get like double whammy, exactly immunity for A and B. And I think uh, another interesting thing about uh, the Twinrix or the vaccine that gives you immunity for both hepatitis A and hepatitis B is there's some thought that when you're getting two um, uh, vaccination for both of those diseases, you actually have a higher chance of acquiring immunity for hepatitis B. So that may be another reason for why we should use that as a as a dual vaccine. Like super, super immunity. Correct. Fantastic. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Naoki Sai and Dr. Marina Reutman. They are at the Liver Center at Queens Hospital. And we are talking today about hepatitis B and C in particular. We're going to talk some more about hepatitis C in just a moment. But if you or a loved one has ever been exposed to hepatitis B or C, Or if you have a question about what are the consequences if you do get a positive test, you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now let's talk about hepatitis C for a little bit. Dr. Sai, you mentioned that it's now we're seeing a greater increase in the number of people that we are finding out have been exposed to hepatitis C. We've gone through the statistics for B about how often these people could potentially progress to chronic active infection and therefore be at a greater risk for, we mentioned, the cirrhosis and liver failure. What are those statistics for hepatitis C? Yes, uh, for hepatitis C, it's about 10 to 15 percent of people who are acquire the ex- infections be able to get rid of it or control it on their own without treatment. So it's about 75 to 85% of the time will become chronically infected. 75 to 85% of the time you get the chronic infection. Correct. And so what does that do to the liver? Do all chronic infection uh, people who have this with hep C get cirrhosis, or do some of those just kind of live in the gray zone and not develop a liver problem? Yes. Uh, we don't really have a, a large population's long-term cohort study, meaning that we followed them over a long time. But bits and pieces on different uh, population study in a small group, we kind of figure out probably about a third of people who are infected will progress very fast. 
And about a third of them would kind of smoldering, but over 20, 30, or 40 years, they'll get to the end. And about a third of them would probably smoldering, but very mild and never become active, and probably even without any consequence over time. The problem we have is we cannot identify who will for sure. We do know if they take, if they drink alcohol heavily, or you use other agents that can harm the liver, they tend to get worse faster. And so, you know, if you're told, first of all, get screened. So we know it's easy to get screened. It's a simple blood test, easy to do. But if you're told that you've been exposed to hepatitis C, you have to make it a priority not to be drinking alcohol, not to take too many doses of medicines that go through your liver, like, in, in fact, even Tylenol, acetaminophen, to really focus on being nice to your liver, being careful not to cause any type of a problem. If you if you find out that you test positive for hepatitis C, is that one of those situations where you should start getting immunized against hep A and B? Correct. Because you want to make sure you don't get another infection. Yes. Because you said there are five different types of hepatitis. Yes. And you can get more than one at once. Correct. And that's not good. Well, I'm really curious. So we've got A and B and C, do we just go down D, E, and F? Is that the other types? The other type ends at E. There's a D and E. A D and an E. Right. Okay. And, and D is kind of uh, a parasite to the parasite of B. In other words, you have to have hepatitis B on board before you got infected with hep- hepatitis D. It kind of makes B worse. Yes. Okay. But they cannot infect a person without this person already infected with hepatitis B. Hepatitis E are mostly through, just like hepatitis A, is uh, through uh, contaminated food. And they can cause acute hepatitis. But in the last few years, we have been starting to recognize that there is a different type of hepatitis E genotype, the different types of hepatitis E in this country and Western Europe. That's different than we used to things in places like in India, uh, so, uh, the uh, South Americas. The genotype that we are seeing now in the United States is endemic here. And we don't know really what transmits the hepatitis E itself, but they found that those uh, states that have a lot of pig farmers, such as Iowa, have a high instance of exposure to hepatitis E. They don't even know they were infected in the past, but when they checked the blood, they found 10 to 12% of those population actually has positive uh, anti-hepatitis E antibodies. So it's more than we thought it's a a health problem. The good thing about it is this hepatitis E, just like hepatitis A, do not cause chronic infections, except in this country, except those people who are immune-compromised. For instance, for liver transplant patients, we're starting to see they get acute hepatitis E and become chronically, continuously damaging the liver. We do have some treatment for that now, but that is just in the last two, three years become a very hot topic in my field about hepatitis E. There's one thing I just want to mention when I was writing up about hepatitis E. One of my good friends from Texas was telling me, say, you know, Hawaii has the highest hepatitis E prevalence in the rat population. And it's been reported from Hawaii 
from our tropical medicine in the past. This is published in 1999. And they somehow get a, a lot of rats, test them for all sorts of different pathogens, and find out that 90% of them have positive hepatitis E antibodies. So it's, it's in the communities, and, and we just have to look for it. So now it becomes one of the tests we do test when somebody comes to us with acute hepatitis. Sure, we have to look. Yes. Even in, you mentioned the rat population, we may not have a large quantity of pig farms here, but now we found another species for which there could be an exposure, and nobody wants to know if there's rats in their house, but another reason to make sure that, you know, you don't have any of those little exposure holes that they can get in through. So, all right, well, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Naoki Sai and Dr. Marina Reutman. We're talking about hepatitis B and C. Lots of good information coming up and a few callers in the line. If you'd like to join us, you can at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. I'm Ryan Ozawa. And I'm Bert Lum. Next time on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll go on location to Windward Community College to find out about a new program called AgriPharmaTech. We'll talk to Professor Inge White and lab assistant Nyan Stillwell about developing nutritional health products from common backyard plants. That's next time on Bite Marks Cafe, Wednesday at 5. Business news. It's not all banks and budgets and bottom lines, you know. At Marketplace, we think it can be lots of things. The big trends are leather and lace. I think that the studio knows that movie was a mistake. I love to work like no one really should. Oreos and milk. I'm Kai Rizdon. Whether you need news or the numbers or just a little chuckle, we'll have it for you next time on Marketplace from APM. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Naoki Sai and Dr. Marina Reutman from the Liver Center at Queens Hospital. We're talking today about hepatitis B and C and learning some really interesting information. Our rat population here in Hawaii is infected with hepatitis E. You might never have heard about it, but hopefully you'll never get it. And also, we have a higher rate of hepatitis B because we have a lot of people who come from Asia, one of the groups that should be tested for that at least once in their lifetime, and if negative, consider getting shots and immunizations for it. Well, we also have a couple of callers in the line. We've got a lot more good information to share with you, but I'd like to first talk with Steve from Manoa. Steve, welcome to The Body Show. Hi, Dr. Kozak. How are you? Fabulous. How about yourself? Good, good. Uh, my question is, is that when I was young, a lot younger, uh, many, many years ago, from uh, intravenous drug using, I contracted hepatitis. Uh, about, I got better from it, and about six months later, I was drinking it at some rock concert and got a relapse. So I had two bouts of it, and since that time, I've been fine, um, and I don't drink or do any of that anymore. But... Um, uh, my concern is, is with Tylenol because it is something that helps me sleep. I take like a half of a Tylenol uh, occasionally, maybe one, twice a week. I have a little arthritis, and it also helps that with a little aspirin. And I'm just, I was, I've always been concerned about the fact that I've had hepatitis in the past, uh, and I don't drink or I don't do other drugs. But I, I did have also uh, a back operation for about 
eight months I was taking some painkillers, which aren't good for the liver either. That's that's finished. So I just wonder about the Tylenol usage with all the uh, publicity in the newspapers about that. What is a half of a normal Tylenol any problem twice a week? It's a great question, Steve. I have a question for you. What hepatitis did you get infected with? Do you know? You know, I, I've, they've changed the, the letters over the years, and I'm I a little know. confused, yeah. uh, but it was from intravenous drug use. Um, uh, That's it, how much you know. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. All right. Well, it's a, and you're right. They've changed it. It used to be A and B and C. Then it's non-A, non-B. And you're like, wait, what letter? What's going on? So I right. totally understand your confusion. Um, you know, I, I'm curious, Dr. Reutman. So, so Steve's had two bouts of hepatitis, acute and yeah. well, a, assume that it's a viral hepatitis. Uh, Tylenol, should he just not do it? I mean, it's such a small amount. Half of a 325, you know, you're looking at a pretty small dose there. But uh, what I guess I would be wondering, Steve, when was the last time you saw your doctor to check on your liver function? Oh, I've had liver, uh, I've had blood tests, liver function for a long time. I'm I'm 64 and I've, this was when I was 19. Okay, so this has been a long time. You've been considered okay. So What do you think, Dr. Reutman? Tylenol, is it okay? So I think there's a couple issues, and you, you're bringing up both of them. I think one of them is uh, it would be really good to know of what hepatitis that you were infected with, you know, back when you were 19. Um, I mean, my guess, it probably was hepatitis B, and there's simple blood tests that would tell us, you know, whether or not you were infected in the past and just simply cleared it. But I think it would provide some peace of mind to know that whatever infection that you've had at the age of 19 is gone and we don't have to worry about it. As far as the Tylenol dose, the um, recommendations have recently changed even for healthy people of how much Tylenol we can take per day. Specifically, it used to be that we can take four grams of Tylenol within the 24 hours, and that has been lowered to three grams per 24 hours. For patients with liver disease, we actually further lower that limit to two grams a day. Um, at the uh, half of the 325 milligrams uh, that you're taking, I think is very, very safe. So as long as we stay under three grams for healthy adults, and as long as we stay at two, under two grams for patients with chronic liver disease, I think we are safe. And uh, again, this is not something that you'd want to make a habit out of. I think Tylenol is meant to be used occasionally for headaches, muscle pain, or fever, but it's not something that you should be taking two or three grams consistently every day because chronic exposure can also lead to some damage. So we've got some good news for you, Steve. First off, simple blood test will tell you what hepatitis you had when you were 19. So, you know, 40-some years ago, you can find out exactly what it was. And... You can still fall asleep at night, take your Tylenol, because your half dose that you use not even every night should not cause a lot of a lot of problems. Now, I'm curious, Dr. Reutman, you mentioned that the guidelines for the use of acetaminophen or Tylenol have changed. Why do you think that was? Were we seeing people taking way too much, causing liver problems? Well, we certainly are seeing a lot of people taking too much Tylenol, and I think a lot of the... Tylenol overdoses are unintentional. Tylenol is an <clears throat> acetaminophen, and it's contained in multiple different formulations, right? You can buy Tylenol just as straight Tylenol. Tylenol is contained in many types of uh, 
cold or um, upper respiratory infection medications. Tylenol is contain is part of the stronger painkiller medications where it's coupled with opioids. So I think it was very easy for people to take an unintentionally high dose of Tylenol, which can lead to severe liver damage and possibly liver failure and death. So That's a good reason. Severe liver damage and failure and death. I'll, I'll take that. But, you know, for a lot of folks, even, and I'm sure you've noticed this for both of you as well, the current amount of Tylenol in products like Vicodin, Tylenol with codeine, they actually lowered that amount. So they required that any pain medicine not have the traditional 500 milligrams, but down to 325 to help to eliminate some of that overdose, that unintentional. Because you could be told, take two tablets, one to two, every four to six hours. And essentially, that could mean that you take two every four hours, and that that's too much acetaminophen or Tylenol, and that could cause liver damage. So so Steve's got good news. You're taking a tiny dose, but there's also some blood tests that can clear up the ABC confusion that you have regarding what sort of type of infection you had when you were 19. And the other point you mentioned, Marina, was very important, which is he might have cleared it. Exactly. It might be gone, mm-hmm. in which case it's not a risk in the future. And that alone is enough of a reason to get tested. Absolutely. Just for peace of mind. Well, and there's more than one blood test for hepatitis You can check to see if you've had exposure. You can check to see if you've had just immunizations or vaccines for it. You can check to see if you have different types of antigens still in your bloodstream. So it's more than just one little test, but it gives you a lot of information. Exactly. And uh, it does come as one little blood draw. Right. So that's a good point. It's just one vial from you, but we do a lot of stuff with it. Exactly. Exactly. So they can tell us whether or not you've had an infection in the past and have cleared it, whether or not you have a chronic active infection. And uh, if the chronic active infection is present, then we would go one step further to figure out what type of hepatitis B you have and how much of the virus is present in your blood. That's when we talk about doing viral loads and how much is in your body. Yeah, it's it's uh, not just the B. I think you should check for A and C so you know what you have. Just do them all, all of A, B, and C. Right. Because A, you can clear. Right. You get all yellow, you get liver failure, you get jaundiced, and then it goes away. B could become chronic active, and C we worry about because yeah. that has a greater likelihood to do damage. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, we've got another caller on the line. We have Kalika from Kauai. Kalika, welcome to The Body Show. Thanks for being patient. Aloha, doctor. Thank you for this important show. Aloha, and thank you for listening. What can we do for you? Yes, in the 90s, uh, thinking that I might be traveling to Asia or Africa, I got the complete uh, Hep uh, B series. How long is that good for? Great question, Kalika, because a lot of people want to know. Dr. Reutemann? I mean, I believe that the hepatitis B lasts a long time. In most of the time, it should be good enough for, life. for lifetime. Exactly. exactly. Did you get all three, Kalika? I believe I did. I'm gonna I'm gonna have my doctor uh, check my immunity uh, and next blood work. Good idea. Double check because I have a lot of folks who see me who got maybe the first shot, maybe the second one, and then they're not so sure about that third one. So uh, when in yeah, doubt... I didn't know, you know, that way I'm protected in case I, I have a blood transfusion in Asia or 
get uh, friendly with somebody I might not, I should not have gotten friendly with. <laughs> I like but the way the thing you. Is, I have a couple <laughs> uh, related questions. Mm -hmm. There's been several uh, long-term longitudinal studies. Uh, involving hundreds of thousands of people over several decades, and they've indicated that it seems like if you drink like two to four cups of coffee a day, there's a, a, a liver protective function, and it lowers your chance of getting liver cancer by, I think, at least 40%. Are you, are you familiar with these studies? I see Dr. Sai and Dr. Roitman shaking their head yes, and I'm thinking, are you telling me you just want to drink your coffee, Kalika? But they're both saying yes, they're familiar, and they know about this. So, it's like, you know, I buy into this acid-alkaline acid hypothesis, and, uh, you know, I recently become a vegan uh, because of the uh, anti-angiogenetic factors from uh, foods from animals. Uh, but the thing is, uh, then of course, I mean, I'm, I'm a certified health nut, but basically, you know, every day I have two forms of milk thistle, and uh, I, I just, I limit all the bad things. I, you know, uh, I, I recently, because uh, they found out that uh, the last 10 years that people taking metformin, they're saying that everyone should take metformin, so I don't drink alcohol because that's contraindicated. Somehow, there you know the lactic acid issue. But the thing is, um, when you're mentioning the the vitamin E, and you know here on Kauai we have like, uh, you know, you know, especially like around a restaurant, there's a lot of rats and all that. I'm a former cook, so you know the main thing is I just got to thinking, what uh, what about the fleas or like the bubonic plague? Isn't there a possibility of infection from like the black death and the fleas on the rats? Well, you know, Kalika, you're going into a lot of different directions there, so let's kind of take them one at a time. First of all, two to four cups of coffee is at liver protective. Dr. Sai? Uh, yes. Well, there are several studies. The biggest one is from NIH, where they, for the last 20, 30 years, they've been seeing patients with chronic liver disease, and they ask a lot of questions, including coffee, tea, and other things. They draw their blood. They follow their disease long-term. And what they come back is it was a retrospective study is that they found that the more filtered coffee that you drink, the better your liver is. So filtered. You made a yes. point to say filtered coffee. Yes. And the reason we don't know much about it, but apparently there is two components in the coffee that may have harmful effect that can be filtered out. So the that, that seems to be one of the explanations. Now, I have to put one caution here is this is a retrospective analysis. It's not a prospectively very well-balanced study, number one. Number two, over the years, when I look at dietary-related scientific research, it is very difficult to say for sure whatever their findings are really true or not they maybe show us a trend because we really cannot control everybody's food or eating habits over 10 years or 20 years. You know, we don't even remember last Monday, what do we eat? And these are all through questionnaires and questions, and we may let one of them questions out, so the result of that may not be as good. But the, the good thing about this a study is that it's not only from NIH, it's from many other countries that come up with the same result. That seems to confirm the possibility that this is helpful. And again, coffee, unless you have heart 
problems or you cannot drink too much coffee. Why not? It's a food and it's a drinks. And so I, I've been advising my patient to take them. Well, that's another good reason to say, can I drink my coffee? Sure you can. Um, and you're right. You know, you have to be careful. Do you have heart problems or not? Are you causing hypertension? Are you potentially causing some other type of a palpitation or other side effect? But it's good to know that coffee is not as bad as, you know, we used to think that it was. So coffee, you're going to get a yes on that one, Kalika. Now, you mentioned two other things we're going to talk about. And one of those is vitamin E as whether or not that is protective for your liver. We've talked about you know, is it protective for your heart? Is it a good antioxidant? Does it have any effect in the liver, Dr. Reutemann? So vitamin E uh, does have a good effect on the liver in a specific setting of fatty liver disease. And certainly with our population being overweight and uh, having diabetes and cholesterol problems, we see lots and lots of patients at the liver center who have liver damage from fatty liver disease. And uh, uh, vitamin E in that setting uh, is has been shown very helpful. So, however, it is specific for someone who has uh, um, fatty liver disease. A certain condition. So our buddy over in Kauai, Kalika, he went vegan. He's probably less likely to have fatty liver. Vitamin E can help if you have fatty liver, but not necessarily everybody having to go out and take it just because they've heard maybe it's good. Okay. Probably not necessary. Okay. Now, the last thing that he mentioned that I thought we ought to talk about is has to do with transmission. Now, we mentioned, uh, Dr. Sai, you mentioned earlier that rats are exposed or are infected with a particular type of hepatitis, hepatitis E. And could fleas on rats actually get on humans and therefore cause them to develop hepatitis? I don't know of any cases where I've heard of that happening. I know that You know, back in the 1400s or so, bubonic plague was a huge issue, and we have theorized on why that may have happened. But I haven't seen that happen in modern day. I don't think that people who are worried about rats have flea exposure, and I haven't seen that transmission. Have you? Uh, No, no. I think the study that I have quoted is basically a blood serology test just to test someone who had been exposed. Mm-hmm. Same thing with the rats and, and, the, and the pig. But it doesn't indicate that it actually happens from the pig or rat to the human being. It was just an observation that really surprised us. And we have not really, really considered hepatitis, uh, hepatitis E as a problem and until recently, mainly because in my practice we deal with transplant patients. And that is becoming a health issue for us. Well, and you mentioned that being in an immunocompromised state, and when you get a transplant, you have to take medication to keep your immune system from attacking the organ that you transplanted. So you have to be somewhat immunocompromised, and then you may be exposed to other infections. Correct. Okay. So we're not going to worry about, I would worry more about the rat, to be honest. I would hope that the rat doesn't have fleas, but I would hope the rat would not get in my front door. (laughs) And luckily, I have cats, and so I'm hoping that they would somehow scare the rat and make it go away. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Naoki Sai and Dr. Marina Reutman of the Liver Center that was reestablished at Queens Hospital. And we are talking about hepatitis. If you've got a question about hepatitis, about exposure, about prior history, or what you should do if you've tested positive, you can join us at 941-3689, toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us.
I think the alternatives are a little frightening as <laughs> I think investigative journalism is on the decline nationally as a whole. That's probably a lot of that's a funding issue right now. And I think it's so important to have the resources to have people who can take time to look into what's happening in the community and what's happening nationally and let us know. It's a real lifeline. Member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Rona Renner, author of Is That Me Yelling? Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how you can yell less and enjoy your kids more. Sunday morning at 11. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Marina Reutman and Dr. Naoki Sai from the Liver Center at Queens Hospital. We're talking today about hepatitis and hepatitis B and C and why if you don't have immunity, you may want to get vaccinated for A and B. And if you're not sure if you've ever been tested, it's time to get tested for B if you were born in Asia and definitely for C if you were born between the ages of 1945 and 1965, or if you have risk factors, tattoos, intravenous drug use, blood transfusions. There are some reasons to be tested, and it really is a simple way to find out if you've had exposure. Now, before the break, we were talking with Kalika from Kauai, and he mentioned something about vitamin E. And we discussed how it could be helpful for a particular condition when you have a lot of extra fat in your liver. Dr. Sai, you mentioned a couple of reasons why not everybody should just jump on the vitamin E bandwagon. And what were those? Well, uh, it has been shown recently that uh, vitamin E may have bad effect on heart, uh, causing coronary heart disease. So that has been discouraged of using particularly high-dose vitamin E. For fatty liver disease that we are using, we are using 800 international units, which is basically two tablets. Uh, another caution about vitamin E is there is a uh, epidemiology study relating uh, vitamin E consumption to prostate cancer in men. Although it's one study, but it is significantly correlated, so there is a word of caution of uh, not jumping to uh, vitamin E uh, uh, wagon, and, and you have to have a reason to use it. Well, and if you have a diagnosis of fatty liver and you you have been given this by your doctor, good reason to take it, but we really shouldn't rush out to Costco and buy the big bulk size of vitamin E and just start taking it. Could be risky. Correct. You got to be careful. Talk with your doctor. All right. Very good point. Now, let's talk for a, for a few minutes about hepatitis C. Because that was the guideline that came out this year that really started the ball rolling. It really kind of advanced the conversation about viral hepatitis because the CDC put out the guideline that people should be tested. Now, one of the reasons they didn't do it before is because the treatment that was available was very difficult. Interferon was one of the treatments, hard to tolerate, long duration of treatment, effective for some people, really effective, and for others, not so much. But there are some new modalities of treatment for hepatitis see these days, and they have come out more recently and appear to be fairly effective. What's new in the treatment of hepatitis C? Well, that's a, that's a very loaded question. <laughs> we can probably spend the rest of the, or most of the hour talking just about that. 
But basically, the treatment of hepatitis C has been revolutionized over less than a year. There has been um, tremendous advances in how easy it is to treat the patients, uh, how tolerable the treatment is, how short the treatment regimen is, and how effective it is. So I think over the last nine months, since December of 2013, the treatment has changed very dramatically. And uh, what's what's really interesting that it is about to change again. In uh, October of this year, we're expecting um, that new treatment regimens are going to come out, which going to simplify the treatment even further, possibly make it even shorter. So um, that has been a very dramatic change. How long are we talking about with treatment? Is it you get treated for 10 days, 10 months, two years? What duration of treatment are we talking about? So if we step back and look how the patients were treated in the past, their treatment regimens usually contain uh, interferon um, as well as one or two other um, medications. The treatment lasted anywhere from 24 weeks to 48 weeks, so anywhere from six months to a year. And that's a very, very long time to take any type of medications, and particularly the interferon. So the treatment that is about uh, to come out in October will last 12 weeks for the most patients, eight weeks for some of the patients, and uh, will be um, will no longer contain the interferon. So it will be dramatically easier to administer, dramatically easier to tolerate, and it will be much shorter in duration. And uh, the, I guess the most important thing to mention that the effectiveness of it uh, has changed dramatically. I mean, we went from uh, the, the the early days when the cure rate uh, was somewhere in the order of 10% to now the cure rate being above 90%. And the cure rates above 90% are now becoming the standard. And I mean, it, you mentioned dramatically change. That's 180 degrees. So, so we've really gone from fairly ineffective hard to tolerate, highly intense therapy to, hey, look, we can now cure you. And earlier in the show, why would you want to cure hepatitis? You mentioned, well, you know, it could cause liver failure, cirrhosis, and death. And I think those are three fairly good reasons to want to consider being treated. And if you don't treat it, if you allow this hepatitis to continue, then you have a significant risk of developing serious consequences that you could have prevented. That's really the key. Uh, I, I do want to add one thing is that one of the major side effects, if you will, is cost. And I'm that sure is a side effect, sort of. That's that's <laughs> a very if for insurance companies that's a big effect. But okay, so cost is always a consideration and right. so you mentioned that that's that's a big issue. That's a big issue and I think, you know, when you concentrate on this cost issue, uh there are different perspectives in discussions. And I think for myself, I think we should look at this uh, with a very composite, comprehensive approach in cost analysis. It should not be just cost of the medicine. It should be also cost of not treating these patients, of downstream effects. So that will be a cost against the cost of the medicines if we don't treat someone. Sure. What is the cost of a transplant? I mean, that's right. a lot higher, a lot higher right. and a lot more difficult to cover than it is to treat it up front. So it's right. a very good point. We've got a few callers in the line. We have Bob from Waikiki. Bob, welcome to The Body Show. Yes, thank you. 
I, I just wanted to say, kind of lead into the treatment thing, but you beat me to it, thank goodness. Uh, I've had hepatitis C for 45 years. I'm 65. Uh, been pretty asymptomatic from it. I've been lucky. I've monitored my uh, uh, liver function test every six months and my viral levels once a year. Just recently, I've decided to take the treatment, and now my doctor uh, still recommends the interferon. But now that this other opportunity has come up, I was thinking about going there. Uh, but I understand it costs maybe seventy-five to eighty-five thousand dollars. I don't know uh, how that's going to affect that, but I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, I've been lucky with my hepatitis C. I've seen a lot of people uh, not make it this long, and I haven't. To tell you the truth, followed the regime like I should have. That's. Uh, I just wanted to say that. And one other question: Is it is hepatitis C? often tied into a thyroid situation. I know a lot of people with hepatitis that have hypothyroidism, Hashimoto syndrome. Have you seen any link there? Has there been any proven links? Thank you. Interesting questions, Bob. And I'm sorry to hear that you've had hepatitis C for 45 years, but good job staying alive and doing well and getting excited about treatment. So first off, we didn't even mention the cost if we know, you know, the new medicine coming out in October, what is the average cost of hepatitis C treatment with the newer medications, Dr. Sai? Uh, it's probably somewhere, the whole package, somewhere just the drug cost, uh, about 140000 to 180000 for the current regimen. And is it covered through insurance? Yes. And we are very lucky that the insurance company, despite their anguishness about the cost, there were... Uh, very uh, responsive to the response. And, and, and for that, I really want to say one thing. Uh, if you remember in the beginning of my talk about the natural histories of hepatitis C, about there are some people who just don't have very progressive disease, and they may continue to have hepatitis C through life without any major uh, complications. And these people may don't have to rush to it and wait for more effective therapy and a cheaper medicine, hopefully in the future. Uh, but not to mention, not to say that this is going to be a ironclad, you know, uh, rule of policy. I think each individual has to take that into considerations. And, and as a physicians, we always ask an advocate for our patients. So it has to be a concerted effort because you don't want to break the bank, so to speak, and then inference other treatment option for other disease for other of your uh, fellow citizens. And so that's the cost issues. And uh, I, I, I'd like to know if someone have a hepatitis C, how bad they are, and, and do we need to treat it immediately? So that's kind of a question that, that, that I would ask first, and I would uh, assess them. Uh, but Probably, as Marina mentioned in October, that will be the first uh, wave of uh, uh, medication being approved. But following that, there will be three or two or three other companies making the same kind of agents uh, that will be very as effective for hepatitis C. And hopefully that would uh, drop down the price uh, by marketing uh, pressures, and I think that will be beneficial to all involved. And uh, so for you, Bob, I think you probably want to sh be sure that your liver disease stage, which means how much scar tissue you have in the liver, that can be done by 
many different ways, including blood tests or imaging, and then make your decision or with your physician see if it is needed to be treated right away, or you can wait for this newer therapy uh, that is much easier and has high responsiveness. Well, and you brought up a very good point, which is, you know, five years ago, interferon was the only treatment. And now we've advanced so much further that somebody with mild disease five years ago that said, I'm going to wait, would be able to take advantage of the fact that we have better medicine up and coming. And so, you know, if you don't have a high degree of liver scarring and liver disease, maybe you do want to wait. It really just depends on your personal profile. And that's where both of you at the Liver Center really... It's the expertise that you have as a specialist to really go through and look at all those individual risk factors, look at all of those different parameters, and take a look at the whole entire picture. And that's that's why we need you guys. So I'm glad you're here today, and I'm glad that you're available to help treat people in the islands so that we can have the most up-to-date treatment that they have everywhere else as well. Thank you. All right. So thank you, Bob, for bringing up some good questions. The other quick one was the thyroid connection. Any thoughts, Dr. Sai? Well, uh, hepatitis C virus is a very interesting virus, and they seem to uh, incite, so to speak, uh, B lymphocytes. And B lymphocyte is one of the key factors for uh, an autoimmune process. And in that, they have connection with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. We also see their connection with B cell lymphoma. They can induce that. And there are several other extrahepatic manifestations, and thyroiditis is one of them. So there's a connection there, Bob. And you're right. You saw it, and Dr. Sai explained it. Okay, we have time for just one more caller. We have Jeannie on the line from Kauai. Jeannie, thanks for being patient. What can we do for you today? Yes, I'm just listening to your show. Um, I have had questions, which I've been looking for um, online and asking my doctor, but um, I was having challenges that related liver from everything I looked at mine, and um, I went into my doctor, and um, I requested a, a liver uh, test, uh, I can't think of the name of it, but where it, it, um, all the enzymes and so forth, and they it came back that I have um, a non-alcoholic um, fatty liver, and which is interesting because I eat such a pure diet. I've been forced to eat a pure diet, um, and but even along with that, and that was about a year ago. Um, I continue to have more and more weird things happening with my body that when I read online it could be related to liver. Like I've had this itching my skin for five years, actually, and it's a hot itching, and it comes and goes. But then after that, things keep happening. Like um, it seems like I'm becoming allergic to everything, um, any kind of uh, fabrics except for cotton, any kind of metal. Um, I can't touch it. Can't wear a lot of makeups anymore. This kind of just gradually happened more the last year since I got dentures, and I I get concerned. My doctor doesn't doesn't really seem to think there's anything wrong, even with a fatty liver. But I'm kind of lost, <laughs> um, and it's controlling my life right now. Just and I and I this itching and the um, the to- feeling of being toxic all the time, unless I completely exercise really hard every day and sweat it out. Um, anyway, I think that covers some of it. I'm in tight muscles on the left side. It just contracts so tight that I, I can't breathe sometimes. 
Well, you know what, Jeannie, it sounds like you've got a whole complex of symptoms that you just mentioned a really important point, which is it's controlling your life. And I think the stress from having this diagnosis of fatty liver and, you know, noticing some of these other symptoms, which may or may not be related, the fact that it's it's causing you so much stress is only going to make the symptoms even worse. Now, you know, we were talking about hepatitis B and C today, but Dr. Reutemann, you mentioned fatty liver, and we do see a lot of people who have this, non-alcoholic, meaning you're not a drinker, but for whatever reason, your liver has a preponderance of fat, and it affects the liver function. Other than vitamin E, which we mentioned earlier, could be a treatment for it, what are some of the other treatments that we do for fatty liver? I mean, diet is a lot of it, exercise is a lot of it, but what else can we do for someone who has this condition? So a couple of things about fatty liver disease. I mean, I, one does not necessarily have to be obese or overweight in order to have fatty liver disease. Yeah, hey, you don't have to the, be fat. Your liver can just be fat all by itself. I mean, how unfair is that? It, exactly, exactly. So there is such an entity as the skinny fatty liver disease. So people who have diabetes or hyperlipidemia or high cholesterol are also at significant risk for developing um, fatty liver disease. In terms of treatment, I mean, certainly uh, the large majority of people with fatty liver disease are overweight. So the cornerstone of treatment of fatty liver disease is weight loss. We usually recommend that people lose about 10% of their body weight. And that actually has a remarkable effect on both how people feel as well as on their liver function tests. The, we did mention vitamin E, which is uh, very effective when it's taken in appropriate um, circumstances. The other thing that we do recommend for patients to take is probiotics. And generally, we recommend uh, something as simple as eating yogurt, the unprocessed yogurt, which will make your uh, gastrointestinal environment repopulate with healthier bacteria. And that is um, also been shown to be effective in the treatment of fatty liver disease. So it's kind of a multifaceted approach of weight loss, healthy eating, uh, probiotics, and vitamin E. And so it sounds like, you know, unfortunately, Jeannie, you have a lot of challenges with your current diagnosis. But that's part of the reason why I love to have more than one brain help me out. You know, and so respectfully to to your doctor, uh, it's time to maybe consider seeing a liver specialist and finding out a little bit more about what else you can do. We were lucky enough today to have Dr. Naoki Sai and Dr. Marina Reutman from the Liver Center at Queens here in the studio. And thanks both of you for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank, Thank you. you. It went by fast. We're going to have to have you on again because, boy, it went by fast. If you want to have more information about the Liver Center, you can give them a holler at 691-8838. Again, that's 691-8838. And you can also take a look and see if you feel as though you have a liver problem. It's always a good idea to make sure that you get tested. If you haven't been tested for Hep B, you're born in Asia, get it done, get it, get tested. And Hep C, 1945-1965, time to do it. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on our podcast, hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. Oh.